Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to the book of Genesis, chapter 44 and chapter 45, as we continue our series in the life of Joseph. In this series in the life of Joseph, we've been looking at a number of crucial questions as we're about to bring this to a close. And over the last two months, we've looked at a life and of a family that we can sometimes see ourselves in. We've asked difficult questions like, do you know why you were born? Do you know who you are? Are you willing to wait for God? How big is your God? Are you willing to face your past? And then today, I want to speak to you on the topic, do you really want to be set free? I've heard it said that the hardest truth that you'll ever face is the truth about yourself. That's true for me, and that's true for you. And when we ask the question, do you really want to be set free, it means it allows for some time of introspection where we're going to look on the inside and say, God, is there anywhere in my life that I'm being held captive by myself, by my past, by my habits, by things, Lord, that I have truly not given to you, but today I'm willing to look at? Now, most of us do whatever we can to keep from facing the truth about ourselves. It's easy to face the truth about another person, but it's hard to face that about ourselves. It's always easier to pretend and maybe play games and put up a facade about who we are. The truth of the matter is, though, it's very difficult to come to grips with our personal failures. Now, I want you to be successful. God wants you to be successful. But sometimes the first step on the path to success is dealing with what's happening inside of us, of who we are and what we're going through on the inside. And truth rightly told ultimately leads me to God who is all truth and helps us not only in relationships with others, but even on the inside. And the first step to personal growth is overcoming problems when we have the courage to tell the truth even about ourselves. And the people who dare to tell the truth about themselves, biblically we find, are people who get stronger, who draw closer to God, and are used most effectively by God. Now here's the question. Is it painful to do this? You better believe it is. Is it scary? Of course it is. Is it easy to do that? No way. And I'm going to tell you a couple of reasons why in just a moment that that happens. But I want you to know for those people who are willing to swallow their fear, endure the pain, and decide to take the hard road to getting closer to God, confession of sin, and moving into the life He wants for us are people who not only get better, but people who fulfill the plan that God has for them. I have seen marriages saved by truth-telling. I've seen marriages destroyed by truth-withholding, by deceiving in a relationship, this inner deception. Jesus may be said at best in John chapter 8 and verse 32, notice on the screen, when he says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. A counselor in writing on that verse one time said, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. But he added these words, but it will hurt you first. And sometimes we don't want to get better because we don't want to know the truth that can hurt us first. We don't like pain. We don't want to go through pain. And and the truth is, most people have trouble growing spiritually, and it's not because we don't know truth. My soul, would you agree with me that we have more truth today than we know what to do with? You can come to any church in any city in any village and walk in the doors and hear truth. You can turn on AM radio and FM radio and hear Christian truth all day long. 
We have CDs. We have books. You have the Word of God, which is truth, filled in front of us all the time that we can look at. We have so much truth coming to us, it's running out our eyeballs. That's not the problem. We hear it all the time. The, 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 tr the truth is that we know the truth, but we don't want to let the truth hurt us. We always think that that truth is for someone else and not us. So here's what we do. And by the way, I can tell I really have your attention this morning. We sometimes deflect the truth. We say, oh, yeah, that's good for the guy in the third row. I hope he's really listening to that. We ignore it. We deny it. We argue it. And sometimes we even attack it and say things like, preacher, that's just your opinion. God understands my situation. But in general, we avoid it any way that we can. Well, it's one approach like Captain Kirk would take on the, on the spaceship Enterprise when all the Klingons were coming in and they were getting ready to attack on every side of all these salvos coming towards them. You know what they would do? They'd put up the force field. And even though it would shake them up a little bit, they would always survive the attack. And sometimes what we do with the Holy Spirit, when he's coming in to get our attention, we put up the force field. The excuse field. And though he may get our attention, we deny it, we ignore it, we put it off long enough that we think we're surviving it. And after a while, we can get so good at defection that the truth never gets through to us at all. And that's why today there are Christians who are saved, who are going to heaven, who are still angry, who are still stubborn, who are still bitter, who are still greedy, who are still arrogant, who are still filled with lust who are still self-willed, who are still unkind. And when you're finally willing to be hurt by the truth about yourself, when we look at on the inside, then that's the point that we can be set free. Case in point, in case you're wondering where I was going. We find ourselves in Genesis chapter 44, where for the first time in 22 years, Joseph's brothers are going to have to look on the inside where they're going to have to face everything they've done to Joseph. Over the last seven weeks, we've reviewed the life of Joseph, but I thought this week, if we reviewed the life of Joseph up to now, I would only have time to say amen and go on. So if you've missed the last seven weeks, go online and you can listen to some of the wonderful stories about Joseph up to this point in time. When last we left Joseph and his brothers, here was the situation. They were getting ready to send, uh, the, Jacob was sending his boys down to get the grain to, they could be fed, not only once, but twice. When we pick it up in Genesis chapter 44, it's their second trip down, and this time Benjamin is with them. When we think of Benjamin in the story of Joseph, we always think of little Ben, this little kid. But the truth of the matter is, Benjamin was a grown man at this point in time. Remember, Joseph has been gone for 22 years. And Benjamin, according to Genesis chapter 46, even had children. So he wasn't this little five-year-old, six-year-old, elementary school-aged child. He's grown up. And yet Joseph has not seen Benjamin in all of these years. And when he found out that Benjamin was still there and that his father was still living, he wanted them to come back. And so at the end of chapter 43, all 12 of the brothers are together for the first time in 20 years. And they had a reunion, a celebration. I, know, I want you to notice what it says in verse 34 of Genesis 43. It's on the screen. It says, they drank and were merry with him. Another translation says, they celebrated and drank freely until everyone was quite relaxed. <laughs> that means exactly what it sounds like. <clears throat> 
The Holman Christian Standard Bible is bold enough to put it this way very directly. It says, they drank and they got drunk with Joseph. All the brothers are together. They're celebrating. Plenty to food, plenty to drink, much to celebrate. To borrow a phrase, everyone was happy, happy, happy at this situation. But what about Joseph? The answer about Joseph is simple. At this point, when they're all drinking and together, the brothers still think that Joseph is dead. They just think this is Pharaoh Jr. that has allowed them to come in. They're going to get grain. They're all going to be doing fine, and they're celebrating. I mean, these guys are in for a really big surprise. They're about to be set free from their guilty past, and, and they don't have a clue that Joseph is behind every bit of it. But behind Joseph, and this is the importance of the entire series that we've done, if you don't get anything out of the last eight weeks, please get this next statement, is that there was not only Joseph behind the scene with his brothers, but there was a God in heaven behind the scene with Joseph orchestrating everything that happens. And if there's one truth in the story of Joseph over 13 chapters that I want us to take home, it is the dealing with the sovereignty of God. How God works in impossible situations, where God moves in difficulties, and sometimes we pray and we ask and we think, God, will you do this? But behind the scenes, God is many times working higher and bigger and wider than we possibly could ever imagine. Now, the truth is about to set the brothers free, and, and we're going to see that God orchestrated the details every step of the way. But are you ready for this? The truth will set you free, but it will hurt first. And the brothers are about to experience that pain. On the back of your worship guide, there are just three simple steps in this that I want you to see. And the first thing that we see from the brothers is a confession. It's been 22 years in coming, but now they're looking on the inside. The banquet is over, and it's time for the brothers to go back to Canaan. Even the father in the chapter previous to this, after he refused to send Benjamin, and all the food had been eaten that they sent the first time. And incidentally, even though the Egyptians knew it was going to be a seven-year drought, Jacob and the boys in Canaan did not know that. They thought, well, maybe if we get one year's supply, we'll be okay. At the end of that year, if you go back to chapter 43, Jacob the father is saying, okay, guys, this drought isn't over. We have to go back. Take Benjamin with you this time. Sarah, Sarah, whatever will be, will be. We have to get food to eat or we're all going to starve to death. And before the brothers leave this second time, they're going to take the food back, and Benjamin's with them. Uh, you know the story that Joseph has his steward hide a silver cup in the bag belonging to Benjamin. And this was not just any silver cup. This was Joseph's silver cup. There are many cups in the cupboard in my house, but my wife has a coffee cup that belongs strictly to her. And this was Joseph's coffee cup, if you will. It was a silver cup. It was a special cup. And he said to his stewards, he said, I want you to hide that in the bag down deep in, in Benjamin's sack. And, and then we're going to send you out and accuse them of stealing the silver cup. Well, that is, in fact, what happened. The brothers denied the accusation because this had happened once before. And they even gave the promise, said, listen, if any one of our brothers have taken this cup from you, let him die. It's not going to happen. Well, it was never Joseph's plan to kill Benjamin. That isn't what he wanted to do. But he wanted to find out if the brothers were going to abandon Benjamin and let him be given up, just like they did Joseph 20 years previous to that. Were they still that calloused? Were they the same men, or had there truly been a change in their heart? And it's no wonder the brothers were terrified. 
I mean, how could this happen to them? They've had this great banquet. They've drank. They've made merry. They've eaten. They've loaded up all the grain on the donkeys, and they're heading back to home. And then all of a sudden, this guy shows up looking for the cup in the sack. What will happen to them as they go back to Joseph's house? All these questions have to be going through their mind. Are we going to end up in jail? Will we be killed? And in every story, there must be a moment where the truth comes out. And the truth comes from the mouth of Judah. If you remember, Judah is the brother that follows the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's speaking for all the brothers, and the confession is made. The Bible says in Joshua 7, 19, make confession of sin and give glory to God. It's an amazing thing for us to think about the fact that when we come to a point of telling the truth to God about ourselves, it gives honor and glory to God. Throughout Scripture, you can find places where people make that confession of sin. In this case that we just talked about in Joshua 7, 19, was when Achan stole the Babylonian garment. And he came to a point where he realized the problem was with him. And he said, I have sinned, and the Bible says, giving glory to God. You remember in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 13 is the scripture where David is being uh, uh, approached by Nathan the prophet because he had caused the death of Uriah and committed adultery with his wife. And Nathan gives him an illustration of how terrible that would be for someone to do that. It would be likened to taking a poor neighbor's sheep and killing it when you have plenty of neighbor, plenty of food on your own. And then Nathan pointed that long finger toward David's face and said, David, you're the man. You're the one that did that. And rather than denying it, David finally came to a point where he said, I have sinned. You can find it in the New Testament. Did you know that even Judas Iscariot, that betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ, came to a point after he betrayed Christ for the 20 pieces of silver, 30 pieces of silver, that he confessed, I have sinned. In the story of the prodigal son in Luke's gospel, chapter 15, the prodigal came to the end of himself, and in the hog pen, he lifted his head toward heaven. He said, I will go to my father and say, Father, I have sinned. And over and over in Scripture, we find that when we come to that point of telling the truth about ourselves to Almighty God, that God can get glory from that. And the Bible says that God wants glory from us in worship more than anything else after we become believers in him. Notice in Genesis chapter 44, verse 16, it'll be on the screen, when Judah is confessing the sin for all the brothers. He said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Now, he's not talking about the guilt of stealing the cup because they did not steal the cup. Joseph planted that cup. But deep down, three times in the story of Joseph, you can find that Judah and Simeon and Reuben are dealing with the guilt of what they did to Joseph 20 years before that. That's the sin. That is the sin. That's the thing that you would never want anyone else to know, that you're covering up, that you're denying, that you're still betraying your heart to the relationship with the Lord. Counselors use this phrase in counseling. They tell people, they say, you're only as sick as your secrets are. And then they add to that, if you've got a lot of secrets, you're really sick. And these brothers had a secret. The secret was they had lied to their father for 20 years about Joseph. And the truth of the matter is, secrets have a way of festering inside of us spiritually until we deal with them. 
I'm not talking about where you hid the salt shaker, but I'm talking about unconfessed sin. And if you've hidden some dark part of your past because you can't bear to deal with it, you're sicker than you think you are. I'm not saying that you have to tell the world, but you must come to a point where between you and God, you deal with that. At some point, if you want to get better, you have to come clean with the Lord. And these brothers have been sick with their guilt for a long, long time, over two de decades. And keeping it inside of them is what happened. They became the prisoners. They thought they made Joseph the prisoner. They became the prisoners. Excuse me. They're in bondage to the fear for many years. It's not on the screen. But Joshua chapter 7, 19 says, My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and make a confession to him. So they confess their secret. If you're here today and you're struggling with anything in your past, you say, Frank, if you knew what I did, what happened to me, what business thing, what relationship thing, what thought, what action that I did, you just would not believe it. But you deal with it. And it's something that you have not truly confessed to God. And said, Lord, I was wrong. I did this. I'm not going to rationalize it. I'm not going to deny it. I'm not going to hide it any longer. It's not my brother, not my sister, but it's me, O oh Lord, standing in need of prayer. Make confession of sin and give glory to God. The Bible says in 1 John 1, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And there is a peace that passes all understanding. And if you're here today, and there's been something dark and deep in your past, and you have come to a point where you've dealt with it, where you've called sin by the right name, where you've called it what it really is. We live in a world that calls sin every name in the world except what it is. We don't commit adultery. We sleep around. We don't steal something. We're, we're entitled to something. And, but when you come to a point where you deal with that with God and make confession to him, it is a point where you begin to grow. But what they had to do was come to a point to confess their secret, and here Judah does it. He says, our sin, and he knew what the sin was, is now being confessed. And that leads to the second step I want you to jot down. Make confession of sin and then repentance. And I promise you, you probably haven't heard the word repentance in a sermon in churches in America more than four times in the last 10 years. It's not a favorable word. Who wants to repent? Who wants to go through that? I'm not talking about penance of trying to do something good in order to get forgiven. That's wrong also. But repentance is such a strong term. A Sunday school teacher once asked the question to, to his class. He, he said, what is repentance? And one little boy said, sir, repentance is when you're sorry for your sins. And he said, that's good. And a little girl said, sir, repentance is when you're sorry enough for your sins that you'll quit them. <laughs> that's maybe a better definition of it. But when we talk about repentance, I want you to know we're talking about a complete change. The word repent means to turn around, to change your thought, to change your action in what you're dealing with. And you also need to know that it's absolutely impossible to be saved and go to heaven without repentance. It is absolutely impossible. It is, the, it is the flip side of grace. It is the flip side of believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. It includes repentance. It's not on the screen, but listen to these verses. Luke 13, 3, Jesus said, Except you repent, you shall also likewise perish. In Acts 3, 19, it says, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. 
And, and this is why many people are confused and, and even deceived about salvation. They believe in God. They've been baptized. They belong to a church. They live a good Christian life. They practice Christian ethics. They pray regularly. They give to the church. But they have never repented of their sin. They've never come to the point and say, Lord, I am unworthy. I am a sinner. I need your grace and your forgiveness. And more than that, listen to this. There has not been a change in their lifestyle. You can have your name on the book of every church in America. You can be baptized in every pond or you know every frog on a first name basis. But if you have not repented of your sin and trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you're no more a Christian than the man in the moon would be a Christian. Uh, you, you never abandoned the evil habits. There's never been a transformation of your desires. I believe the Bible teaches that when you're saved, when you accept Christ, he changes your wants to. The Bible says in Corinthians, old things are passed away, and behold, all things become new. It doesn't mean that you're perfect. It doesn't mean that you will go without sin. But as Dr. Adrian Rogers used to say, I'm not sinless, but since I'm a child of God, I want to sin less. And that should be our desire. And somehow in that process, there becomes a disgust for their sin. And if not, they've never truly repented. And what I tell you, you must repent in order to be saved. What I mean by that is you come to a point in your life where you say, I'm sick and tired of my selfishness and my self-rule. And I'm turning my back on sin. And I'm going to Jesus Christ. And the moment that you accept Christ, you may not understand all of that big envelope. But the Holy Spirit will guide you into light that you know deep in your heart the difference between right and wrong. And you don't justify the sin. You repent of the sin and move forward. I want you to know this. It is God's will for every man, every woman, every boy, and every girl to repent and come to Christ. 2 Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In Acts 17, 30 and 31, it says, In times past, God winked at the ignorance of all men's sins, but in these days has commanded all people everywhere to repent. And so in Genesis 43 and 44, Joseph wasn't simply playing mean games with his brothers in order to get back at them for the way they had treated him 20 years before that. The truth is, Joseph still loved his brothers, as you'll see as we move forward. And he was leading them down a road to repentance. I want you to know this. If Joseph wanted to be vindictive over his brothers, he could have had them executed immediately. He was second in control over all of Egypt. But in Genesis 44, verses 18 through 34, Judah makes the longest speech that you'll find anywhere in the entire book of Genesis in which he pleads, would, they, would Joseph please allow them to take Benjamin back home to Canaan? And at the end, Judah even offers himself as a replacement for Benjamin. Notice in verse 33 what it says of chapter 44. Please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. Now there's the loyalty test. There's the repentance test. Do you love your brother more than yourself? 22 years ago, the brothers didn't love Joseph more than that. Judah was one of the ones speaking, hey, let's sell him. Let's get money out of him. In the old days, the brothers would have abandoned Benjamin and left him as a slave, but all that's changed now. They don't want to leave Benjamin in Egypt. 
They're not going to abandon their brother in the hour of need that he's now facing. And because of their repentant heart, they truly become a family again. They realize the importance of that. Grace has done a deep, deep work in their hearts, and they're about to be set free. And that's the third thing that I want you to see today, and that's the reconciliation. It starts with confession of sin. Make confession of sin and give glory to God. It involves repentance, and now it ends up in reconciliation. Joseph doesn't need to hear anything else from his brothers after this. And guys, here's the amazing thing. He's about to reveal to them who he is. I read a story this week about a young boy in Liverpool, and he had gone swimming. This was a century ago. And when he, they, the custom was to take their clothes off, lay it on the bank, and he went in the water swimming. And somehow the water caught him up out into the deep waters, and he couldn't make it back to shore. A ship had come by and saw him struggling and picked him up and took him over to Dublin. In the process of that time, a man walking on the seashore where this young man had gone swimming found the clothes and inside the jacket found a piece of paper identifying that young man. And he sadly took the clothing to that boy's family and says, it appears that your son has drowned. And for days and weeks, they tried to find that boy to no avail. And so they finally decided to have a memorial for him. And on the day of the memorial, the ship from Dublin had arrived at Liverpool, and he walked home, and the the writer said that when the young man opened the door, the maid was there and said, Thomas, and fell over fainted right in front of him. And the family went in, and no one could believe that he was alive. They thought he had drowned. They were literally having a memorial service for them. Now take that thought in your mind and imagine Joseph and his brothers. They still think at this point that Joey is dead, that he's not coming around. Notice in verse 1, this is one of those hallmark moments. It says, then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. This is Joseph. He cried. Don't say, he didn't say, make everyone go out. Guys, he was emotionally crying. Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud. How loud? So that the Egyptians heard it. And the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Guys, it's me. Is my father still alive? But his brothers couldn't answer him. Answer him. I don't blame them. They probably were going to the bathroom. <laughs> but, but his brothers couldn't answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Dismayed is one word. Shocked is another word. Maybe dumbfounded would even be a better word. You can add confused, astonished, speechless. It, it makes you stop and think. I mean, what, what would it take to convince you someone you thought was dead was actually alive? Especially someone like Joseph. I mean, the last time they saw him was 22 years ago when they sold him to the nomads that were going through. I think they had a case of the shakes, the heebie-jeebies, and everything else that you can imagine. And and I don't think I would say anything either. I mean, what exactly would you say in that moment? Would you look at Joseph and say, hey, brother, no hard feelings, right? (laughs) You, you, You know it was just a joke, right? But here's the neat thing. Actually, there were no hard feelings. There were no hard feelings. There was no retaliation on Joseph's part. Now, this is the hard part. There are a lot of examples and and parallels that we can learn from Joseph. 
But what we learn here is that Joseph's a better Christian than most of us are. Because he didn't retaliate. He didn't have hard feelings. I would whack my brothers to no end if that happened to me. And my older brother David was so demon-possessed. He, he was the oldest of six of us boys. They thought one day they were going to teach Frankie to ride a bicycle. And we, in West Virginia, you live in one of two places, the bottom of the hill or the top of the hill. We lived at this particular point at the top of the hill. And I said, guys, I want to learn to ride a bike. They said, oh, come, come. <laughs> Cometh, little one. And, and they, they put me on this old bicycle, and, and uh, we're at the top of the hill. And I said, no, David, I'm kind of scared. He, I said, please don't let me. He said, brother, I would never let you go. And he didn't let me go. He pushed me down that hill. And I wrecked, and I died. I bled, and it was terrible. And I got up. I said, David, you let me go. I'll never forget, he said, I'm so sorry. He said, come back, come back, come back. And I'm this dumb kid, and I kept going back and kept going back. But here's Joseph who had been pushed off the hill. The bicycle had wrecked him, and he bled. It was really terrible. And he has no hard feelings. He's mature enough in his walk with the Lord that he understands the sovereignty of God that the Lord was up to something greater than the relationship with just he and his brother. He's not trying to get even. There are no threats. He completely let his brothers off the hook. Have you ever been able to do that? Are there still people you're trying to extract a pound of flesh from for something that happened 22 years ago? Instead, he says five things to his brothers. Look at, look at uh, verse 4 in chapter 44. This is on the screen. Here's the five things he says. I don't know if I could do it. He says, come near to me. If the ten brothers, I think I'd have been in the back of the pack to see what happens to the first ones that go up. Secondly, he said, I am Joseph whom you sold in Egypt. He reminds them, I know what you did to me. I am your brother, but I know you're up to no good. You sold me into Egypt And then in verse 5 he says, Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Now that's good news. Don't be angry, distressed, don't worry about it, you sold me here. And in verse 5 he says this great statement, God sent me before you to preserve life. What an amazing perspective. You thought you did this. But behind the scenes God was doing this. God's the one that sent me here and he sent me here for a reason to preserve life. And he goes on to explain the years of famine and how God wanted to preserve the family. And then in verse 9, I just love verse 9. He said, hurry and go up to my father. He'd ask him, is my father still living? Yeah, dad's still living. He's a hundred and some years old now, but he's still living. Go tell dad I'm still alive. Bring him to Egypt. He says, move the whole family down here. I've got a place picked out for us. Actually, Pharaoh had picked the place in Goshen out for them. The richest of all the area said, Joseph, you've done so much for our nation. We want to bless your family. Notice beginning in verse 10 to 13. Joseph says to his brothers, You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children. That's the song that that our choir sings called The Blessing. He will be a blessing to you and to your children and to your children's children. And your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come. That's the first time they heard it. Five more years to come. So that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see. That it is my mouth that speaks to you. 
You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. I love the verse 12. Every son wants to know that his father's proud of him. Joseph says, go back and tell my dad about all my glory. Even the prime minister of Egypt is still just his father's son at the end of the day. And after all the pain and sorrow and sadness, and after rising to the pinnacle of all human achievement that he possibly could ever go through, and after becoming the second most powerful man in the world at that time, after all of that, that was number one on Joseph's heart. Will you tell daddy I did good? Will you tell my dad about my glory? Every child wants to know this. Dad, are you proud of me? Dad, am I doing well? Do I have your blessing in my life? And dads, I want to say to you, make sure your kids hear the answer to that question on a regular basis. His first words were hurry and go get my father. And his last word was hurry and bring him back. And finally comes the moment where Joseph and his brothers reunite in an intimate relationship way. Notice in verse 14 what it says. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed how many of his brothers? All his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. Mark that phrase, all his brothers. That includes Simeon and Reuben and Judah and all the rest who conspired to kidnap him and sell him as a slave. They were all kissed and forgiven by Joseph. What they'd done was unforgivable, yet he forgave them. And there's no greater picture in the Bible of a loving, forgiving Christ that regardless of what we've done, of how we've treated him, how we've turned our back on spiritual things, that he reaches out and wants to love us and care And it's only after that that they talk to them. Here's what happened. His love overcame their shame. Before that, they just sat there. But the love was so overwhelming, they knew he really forgave us. He loves us that much. Guys, do you know that Jesus loves you that much? Do you know that his love overcomes your shame? His love overcomes your guilt? His love overcomes everything that you ever did? For God so loved the world. The love of Jesus Christ is so much that he went to that cross and he died for you and me that we could have eternal life. And because of Joseph, this group of people became a family and true brothers for the very first time in their lives. As a kid, they hated Joseph. Father had showed nepotism to him in a way that was probably wrong. But Genesis 45 ends with the brothers going back home and informing this aged Jacob who nearly died on the spot. Look at the response when daddy hears that Joseph is alive in verse 25. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb. That's a medical term for heart attack. (laughs) His heart became numb for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. When he said, he's still alive, he's there. I mean, first it would be shock. It would frighten him. What do you mean he's still alive? You guys told me he was dead. I can wait to, hardly wait to get to heaven. What did you guys tell your dad at that point? You know, how did you explain all of that? But no matter how you look at it, the chapter ends with Jacob saying, look at verse 28. The New Living Translation says, My son Joseph is alive. I must go see him 
before I die. So here's how the book of Genesis ends. In chapter 46, Jacob makes his way to Egypt to be reunited with Joseph. In chapter 47, Jacob, this old man, gets to meet Pharaoh and settle his entire family in the land of Goshen in the area that's there. In chapter 48, near his death, he calls for his grandsons, Manasseh and Ephraim, Ephraim, and blesses them. In chapter 49, Jacob calls for his sons and pronounces blessings on them. And these 12 will become the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob dies at the age of 147 with his family gathered around him. In Genesis chapter 50, Joseph leads a funeral procession from Egypt to Canaan where he buries his father in a cave. And then in this whole story that we've looked at over 13 chapters, we see the sovereign hand of God accomplishing his purposes for Jacob and for Joseph and for his brothers. For the next four centuries after this, the Jewish people will live in Egypt in prosperity. First in prosperity, and then as slaves when a Pharaoh arises who knew not the name of Joseph. In later times, a deliverer would come to get God's people out of that mess, and his name would be Moses, and he would arise to lead the people out of Egypt. Almost 1,800 years later, a baby will be born who will be called the line of the tribe of Judah, and his name is Jesus Christ. And this is how the New Testament begins. Notice with me Matthew 1, verses 1 and 2. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Who was the hero for 13 chapters? It was Joseph. Who is not mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus Christ? It was Joseph. Instead, it was Judah. Judah who wanted to kill his brother. Judah who sold his brother. Judah who turned his daughter-in-law into a prostitute opportunity and had illicit sex with her. And Judah who is more human than you and I are possibly. God the Father let Judah be representative in the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a reminder to us today that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All of us have. And that the Lord saves and redeems and pulls us back to a saving knowledge in him. He simply included as one of the brothers of Judah, Joseph is, nothing else. On one side of the ledger, you have the fact that Judah was one who said, let's make some money on him. But then on the other hand, Judah's the one that's repenting and telling him we need to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. The truth is Jesus comes from the loins inherited from very fallible fallen people just like you and me. So I want to ask you one more time. How much of this story did Joseph understand when he was thrown in the pit in Genesis 37? Not one bit of it at all. But God knew it all. Do you believe that? God saw it all. Joseph was a great man who served a great God. And the rest of the story could not unfold until the brothers repented of their sin and they were set free and the family was reunited. And God used a miracle through Joseph to bring them together one day, resulting in the Savior being born in Bethlehem. And one final word, and I'm done. We all need to be set free, just as Joseph's brothers were set free. And the path for freedom for us is the same as it was the path for them. If we are willing to face our sin, if we're willing to face our disobedience, 
if we're willing to confess of our sin and repent of our sin, if we're willing to give up our anger and our excuses, then at last we can be set free, not only to love one another, but to have a holy relationship with God that will never be taken away. And that His love can be so overwhelming in each of our lives that you don't have to suffer with the shame of your past. And if you are a blood-washed child of God today and you struggle with the sins of your past, you need to know that's not God doing that. That is Satan trying to attack the peace that you have in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ says, my peace I give to you. And he wants us to have that kind of relationship. So we have to ask the question one more time. Do you want to be set free?